0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 16. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be a white paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you, and you can... uh, Use that for the sermon. Mark 16 is on page 498 of the white or the blue, I guess, paperback Bibles. Um, There have been a number of questions that have plagued thinkers and philosophers and religious leaders over the centuries. Questions like, is there a God? Is there an afterlife? Is there any hope beyond the grave? Is there any meaning to be found in this life? These are questions that people have been dealing with for for centuries. There is another question that I propose to you today that we should answer, and if we answer that question, it could be the key to answering all of those other questions. There's one question before us that we need to get in the front. If we can answer this other question first, it will be the key to unlocking a lot of mysteries of this life. And that question is this. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? That, that's the question that we have to deal with and that's what we're going to look at today. This is Easter morning, of course. It's also called Resurrection Sunday because this is at the center of our faith, this belief in the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus indeed did not Raise from the dead, then we should ask a question. Why are we here, (laughs) first of all? But we should also realize that there are very few answers to our most profound questions. And in fact, we're left in the darkness. Paul says this, if Christ is not risen, your preaching and your faith is in vain. It's a waste of time, it's empty, and it's futile. But if we can get to the bottom of whether Jesus was risen from the dead, this could be the beginning of a new life for you and the key to unlocking many mysteries in this life. And so this passage that we're looking at here in Mark 16 talks to us about the resurrection. We here at New Life are going through a sermon series actually called Roots 66. And what we're doing is going through the whole Bible, looking at one sermon per Bible book. Uh, next Sunday we'll pick up where we left off. In the book of Psalms, you're all invited to join us as we pick that up, or we're going to depart from that series today as we think of the resurrection and read this passage from Mark 16. So if you're able, please stand, and I'll read verses 1 through 8, Mark 16, from the English Standard Version. The narrative goes like this, it says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. God, again, we ask for your spirit to open our eyes and soften our hearts to behold the wonderful truth and grace of your resurrection. Help us, Jesus, we pray. In your name, amen. You may be seated. So, this is a key question, right? I mean, we talk about the resurrection, A lot. We refer to the resurrection, but what do we really mean by the resurrection? I mean, what are we really talking about? Are we talking about a spiritual resurrection? Are we really saying a guy rose from the dead? Actually, he was dead and he came out in his body alive? Is that what we're saying? I mean, we know that those things don't happen very often in our lives. Um, So, some of you might be coming with some doubts and some questions about this resurrection. And so, this is what we're going to consider very appropriate today on Easter morning. The first thing I want to show you is this. Very simply, the resurrection really happened. I want you to know this. This isn't just a tradition and a ritual that we go through with kind of wishful thinking about something that would have been neat if it had actually happened. No, we're talking about something that really did happen. A man who was resurrected from the dead. When it comes to the claims of Christianity, a lot of times people will say, you know, I want you to prove it to me. If you can prove to me that Jesus was risen from the dead or that there is a God, then I will believe it. But when it comes to the claims of Christianity, it's really not something that we can prove. I can't prove it to you and nobody else can because so much of the claims of Christianity are rooted in history, They're historical events, things that have happened in the past. We can't repeat the past. We can't bring it back so that we can observe it. The past is not immediately observable to us. These are things that are past, and so we have to do the discipline of history to try to figure out if what the Bible tells us happened in the past actually did You know, I can't really prove to you actually that Washington crossed the Delaware or that Abraham Lincoln was killed in Ford's Theater. I can't prove that to you. These are historical claims. What we have to do is consider whether historical claims are reliable. This is what a guy named Greg Kokel says. Historians do not trade in proofs, but in probabilities. Their craft is not mechanical like math or logic, but more like an art, like detective work. The goal is determining the most probable account in light of all the relevant information. And so what we have is information that has been given to us in the form of the scriptures, in the form particularly of four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different individuals that wrote a historical account of what happened in the life of Jesus. And what I want to present to you today are reasons why we believe this account is reliable. So, let's look at that. Why are we saying that this historical account is reliable? The first reason is this. Because of the eyewitness reports that we see in the Gospels, and in particular here in Mark. Notice the emphasis in this passage on the word see. Look at verse 47 at the end of chapter 15. I did not read this, but the very end of the chapter prior to 16, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Look down to verse 4 then in chapter 16. As the women got to the tomb looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. Verse 5, entering the tomb, they saw A young man sitting on the right side. And then halfway down, or mostly through verse 6, this is the young man or the angel speaking, and he says about Jesus, he is risen, he is not here. See the place where they have laid him. So there was a saying in Greek culture that went like this. It said, eyes are a surer witness than ears. There was a primacy place on what people saw in Greek culture. It was considered to be reliable accounts of what happened. And what Mark is doing here is saying, look, there are people who saw something, saw these details, saw a tomb that was empty, saw a man, saw where Jesus was laid. From a Greek perspective, this would have been a powerful testimony. And from a Jewish perspective, it also would have been a powerful testimony because, notice in verse 1, there are three people here, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, James and Salome. Now, in the Old Testament, De- uh, Deuteronomy chapter 19, it tells us that two or three witnesses are necessary to establish any kind of charge. So here Mark is thinking from the Jewish context. A Jew will wanna see multiple witnesses, they're there. The Greek wants to see people who saw something and Mark includes that as well. So what Mark is trying to communicate to us here is that there are reliable eyewitnesses. You hear people say this many times, maybe you've said it yourself, I'm not gonna believe it until I see it with my eyes. What Mark is saying here is that we can't see history but we can rely on the accounts of people who did see it with their eyes. And that's what Mark is explaining to us. This is one reason why you should consider an historical account to be reliable. If there are eyewitness reports, but not just eyewitness reports, but eyewitness reports that have significant detail. Notice the details we see in the text. First of all, three names again in verse 1. I just read those to you. And do you notice that there are two people here by the same name, Mary Magdalene and Mary? I mean, have you ever wondered why? I mean, if they were fabricating this, if they were making this up, why would they choose two people with the same name? (laughs) That just makes no sense, does it? maybe, Maybe they were a little embarrassed by that. You know, people are probably gonna question this, but you know, this is what it was like. It was two people named Mary. And so that's a detail, a significant detail that's included. Who were there? These three people. When did they come? Well, there's detail about that as well in verse 2. Very early. On the first day of the week. That's Sunday. That's why we worship on Sundays now. It was on Sunday. How early? Well, sometime after the sun had risen, (coughs) it says in verse 2. Some specific detail about when these women came. And then we even see what was actually happening. If you look at verse 3... What were these women doing? They were saying to one another as they were going to the tomb, who's going to roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? I mean, this is just a conversation they're happening to have. Like if you're headed down to the storage unit or something and you realize you lost your keys or you didn't bring your keys and you're thinking, how am I going to get into the storage unit? I didn't bring my keys. And you say that to your wife or your husband. What, What are we going to do? It's just this conversation, an incidental conversation that's going on. That's what these women are doing. They're they're going and they're realizing, hmm, how are we gonna get into the tomb with our spices when there's a big stone there? And so this conversation, an incidental, casual conversation is taking place and it's included here. It's a significant detail that is an evidence of a historical account that is reliable. One other thing. Not only are there eyewitness reports and significant details here, but there are embarrassing admissions in this text. And this is also another reason why a historical account would be considered reliable. What's the embarrassing admission? Well, sorry, ladies, but it's the fact that it's three women in verse one who are reported to be the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Now, why would that be embarrassing? Because... In this time in history, a woman's testimony was not considered to be credible. You wouldn't invite a woman into court to testify on your behalf, even if she had been there because the woman's testimony was considered not reliable. Here's a guy named N.T. Wright, a very um, highly respected biblical scholar says this, the point has been repeated over and over in scholarship, but its full impact has not always been felt Women were simply not acceptable as legal witnesses. If they could have invented stories of fine, upstanding, reliable male witnesses being first at the tomb, they would have done it. But on top of that, Mary Magdalene, do you remember the story of her, Mary Magdalene? What was significant about her? She was once possessed by seven demons... So not only do we have women who in that culture were considered unreliable witnesses, but we have a woman who was under some demonic influence. Now, if you're fabricating a story and you want your story to be convincing, these are details you would be tempted to remove. Uh, one of the rules of lying is you make things up that benefits you. That, that's the idea, Right? You don't make up lies that undermine your case. You don't make up lies that don't benefit you. So here you have details that don't seem to be enhancing the case that Mark is seeking to make. And so why would he include them? Because they're true. Because this is a reliable historical account We can't prove this. We can't bring Jesus back up and put him on the cross and raise him up from the dead and look at it and say, okay, now I believe because I see it. We, We can't do that. All we can do is rely on historical accounts. And the question for you is, do you believe this? Is this convincing to you? Is this persuasive? And if not, why not? Sometimes people will say, oh, well, these are, the Christians wrote this, though. The Christians, they had an agenda You know, they wanted people to believe this, and so because they had an agenda, they couldn't write accurate history. Well, why not? Everybody has an agenda when they write anything. (laughs) How about Jewish people who have written stories about the Holocaust to try to explain what happened? Do they have an agenda? Of course they do. The agenda is for you to know what happened so that you don't forget. That's their agenda. And their agenda does not prevent them from reporting history accurately. Now, it can. Are there people who have had agendas who have distorted history? Yes. But is that necessarily gonna happen every time? No. Well, what do these accounts say? The accounts are reliable, but what do they actually say? There's three very key details related to the resurrection. First of all, Jesus was dead. Okay, you have to have a dead person before you can have a resurrected person. So did Jesus really die? Well, yes. I mean, this is what the angel says here in verse 6. He says, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He was crucified. This is the Roman way of putting people to death. And the Romans had a reputation for being very efficient in accomplishing that goal. They didn't mess up their attempts to kill people on the cross. And After all, the Sabbath was passed, it says here in verse 1. So again, early Sunday morning, Sabbath began about 6 p.m. Friday. So Jesus has been in the tomb for many hours right now. That's why the women are bringing spices. They're thinking there might be some stench because there's a dead man in that tomb. So he was dead. But the other thing is the tomb was empty because that's what the man says to them again in verse 6, you're seeking Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, but he is risen. He is not here. <laughs> they, they put him in here. They put him in this tomb. Now you might say, yeah, but did they get the right tomb? Well, again, go back to 1547. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother, they, Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. They saw it. They got the right tomb. Okay. That's why Mark is including these details. And now the man in the tomb is saying, he's not here anymore. It's an empty tomb. I mean, this is probably the most convincing evidence of the resurrection, the empty tomb. And no one has been able to come up with an explanation for it. You know what would have been so easy for the Jewish authorities and the Roman Roman authorities to put to rest once and for all this whole Christianity thing is bring out Jesus' body and lay him there on the ground for everybody to see. See, the man is dead. There's his corpse. These are the people in power, Jews and Romans. They would have had the resources to do that. We don't have any historical account of the body of Jesus Christ being produced. Nowhere. The tomb was empty. And then the third thing is, not just the tomb was empty, but Jesus was actually seen alive It says in 1 Corinthians 15, by the disciples and by 500 more people. And Paul goes on to say, and by the way, they're all still alive. In other words, you can go talk to them and ask them what they saw, and they'll tell you that they saw the Jesus who died and was laid in a tomb, risen from the dead. These are the details. <clears throat> These are the historical details that are laid out for us. Is it proof? No. Is it persuasive? It is to me. Is it to you? The resurrection really happened. Secondly, let's look at this. The resurrection offers grace. We're not talking here just about a kind of theoretical or historical or theological thing. What happened in the resurrection is something that affects us right here on the ground with our own struggles and insecurities. And we see this in a beautiful way here in verse 7. Very interesting detail here. Again, the conversation taking place between this man in the tomb and the women. And the man says, go, tell his disciples, tell Jesus' disciples and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will meet him just as he told you. So once you go to another region, you're going to see Jesus. But why does he say in verse 7, go tell his disciples and Peter? Isn't Peter a disciple? Yeah. So wouldn't he be included among the disciples? Y- yeah. So why does he say, don't just tell the disciples, but very specifically, I want you to tell Peter too. I want I want you to make sure that Peter knows. Why would he do that? Why would that be important to Jesus? And the reason is because if there is one person whose heart was aching for a word of grace, it was Peter. You remember Peter's story? He's the guy who, with the other disciples, said, yeah, you guys might betray Jesus, but not me. And he makes this public declaration, not me, I'm not like you, I'm better than you, I am not going to betray this man. And yet when Jesus is arrested, and he is flogged and harassed and put under this trial, he's on his way to the cross, and Peter finds himself in the courtyard, and he's talking to a servant girl, I mean not an authority, but a servant girl, and some bystanders, and they say to Peter, hey, aren't you one of the guys who has been hanging out with Jesus? And Peter says, not me. And they bring it up again. No, no, I, I'm pretty sure that you're the guy. I can tell by your dialect that you're one of the guys who hangs out with Jesus. You're, you're one of them, aren't you? And it says he threw curses upon himself and said, I don't know that man. Fear of bystanders and a servant girl led Peter to betray and deny his savior. And so we have no other record of any conversation that has taken place between Jesus and Peter since then. And so, I mean, imagine what Peter must have been thinking. And then he sees what happens. Jesus going to a cross. He's hanging there in pain and humiliation. And he's bleeding and there's pain, and it's just a horrible, horrific, awful scene, and and Peter's looking at that, and then Jesus gives up his spirit and dies. Can you imagine what Peter must have been thinking? How could I have done that? How could I have betrayed my friend in his time of greatest need? What a coward I am. Jesus probably hates me. When the disciples get together again and hang out, I'm quite sure they're not inviting me. I'm the betrayer. I thought I had a place in his kingdom, but certainly that has now been squandered forever. That that has to be what's running through Peter's mind. And Jesus knows this. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is mindful of that, of this one man's broken heart. And he says, I want you to tell all the disciples, but especially tell Peter that when he goes to Galilee, I'm going to be there waiting for him. And I'm going to spread out my arms and welcome him back into fellowship. And not only that, I'm going to restore him to leadership. That's what a gracious God does. We look through the book of Acts and we see Peter. I mean, he's the one leading the charge. He's the one preaching. He's the one filled with the Holy Spirit. What an amazing, gracious story. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you, you, you have wandered from God. You've been entangled in some kind of a sin. You were maybe brought up religious, brought up in the church. You've gotten distracted. This might be your first time in a church in a long, long time. You've committed sins that you're ashamed of. You you are thinking to yourself, asking this question, is there a way back from me? And the answer is, yes, there is. Because there is grace in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What, what what did Jesus say in the Gospels? He says there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety nine who don't need repentance. Maybe you're that one sinner today, and God is calling you to repent and return to your Savior. Do it. He will welcome you. He will offer you grace, not judgment and condemnation. Turn from your sin and go back to Jesus, and He will welcome you with grace. I remember talking to a guy who was the leader of a ministry called Heart to Heart, which is now First Choice Pregnancy Counseling Center, and he was telling me that there are as many as 600 young women who come to that counseling center a year looking for um, help and direction and counsel about what to do, particularly about unwanted pregnancies. And he said that um, <clears throat> there are quite a few women who come who have had abortions, and they're coming full of grief and pain, and, and they're looking for help. And so they go to this pregnancy, pregnancy center. And I said, well, when you're talking to these women, do you have an opportunity to minister to them? And I said, do you ever find that they become Christians during that time? And he said, well, actually, no, because most of them are Christians. And what's happened is they've gotten pregnant and they're so ashamed they won't go to their church. They can't tell their church. And so they have an abortion because they don't think if they went to their church they would find any grace. I mean, that should just break your heart. This is a place of grace. We worship a resurrected Savior of grace. Does grace characterize us? I would sure hope that if any of you are in a similar situation, that you would not think, I'm not going to that church, New Life. I'm not going to Bob or Brian or those elders because they're going to condemn me. I sure hope that's not your thought because we want to receive you with grace. The resurrection offers grace, but then lastly, the resurrection calls for a response. How did these three women respond when they heard this good news about a resurrected savior, how did they respond? Um, He is risen, he is not here, go, you'll see him in Galilee. And so they they dance a jig and they rejoice and they high five each other. Is that what it says in verse eight? (laughs) No, no, not actually. It says they went out and fled from the tomb For trembling and astonishment had seized them, they said nothing to anyone, and they were afraid. Now, before we're too too hard on these women, I want to point out something. We might ask this question where are the men? (laughs) Do you know where they are? In John chapter 20, it tells us that they're in a room with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. (laughs) The men are hiding. The women at least have the courage to come out, but the women's response to this announcement of the resurrection is is to flee and to be fill, filled with trembling and to tell to tell no one. And it's just always struck me as such an odd detail. And, and I think again another testimony to the reliability of this. I mean, I, I, if you were making this up, I don't think you would put that detail in. It just seems like an odd detail. Why why would they do that? Why would they run away and f- and flee when they've just heard the best news of their life <laughs> that Jesus has risen from the dead? What would be What would be terrifying about that? You know, I mean, that's a good question, isn't it? I mean, I think one thing we can say is that um, they certainly weren't expecting the resurrection when when they came. I mean, they were bringing their spices with them in verse one, again, expecting to find a corpse. Um, Jesus had predicted over and over again that he was going to rise from the dead, but uh, apparently these women didn't believe it. In fact, none of the disciples believed it. You know, they were no more inclined to believe in miraculous resurrections than you and I are. It's not like they were these gullible, primitive people, and we're so modern and enlightened that we don't believe in that stuff. They didn't believe in that stuff either. They weren't expecting a resurrection, so that's one way to explain this. They were genuinely surprised when they heard that he was risen from the dead. But I wonder if another reason is because they did hear Jesus say he was going to rise from the dead, and they, they did hear him make references to, that, references to that, and maybe they didn't believe it, but they heard it. And so when they heard that that actually happened, I wonder if they were just like, oh my goodness, this, we are entering into uncharted territory here. Um, this is so unusual that it's scary. I wonder if that was their their thought. You know, because a dead Jesus is kinda easy to deal with. Really, you know, what what do you do with a dead Jesus? You go visit the tomb like these ladies are doing, maybe make it an annual thing. You tell lots of stories, remember what a great guy was occasionally. You go on with your life as it always was because he died, well, everybody dies. Nothing to see here. a dead Jesus is easy to deal with. A resurrected Jesus, well, that's something else entirely. <laughs> and I wonder if the women were just like, oh, my goodness, this this, this is amazing. This is something I don't have any category for this. <laughs> I don't know how to deal with this. It, it's, it's the unknown to me. And so they flee and, and maybe while they're fleeing and running away, they're thinking things like this. Maybe they're thinking, you know what, if, if he really is risen from the dead, that means everything he said is true. That means he is God in the flesh. That means he's the creator of the universe in the form of a man who is now resurrected from the dead. That's what this means. And they're just faced with this and they, they can't hardly process it. And so, They're thinking, what what could be our response? And the only appropriate response is to say, I mean, my knee must bow and my tongue must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That I must, like Thomas, just kneel down before Jesus and say, my Lord and my God. These are not easy things to do. This requires supernatural humility and an acknowledgement of something only given to us by the Spirit of God. And it's like the women are getting that, but it's a very natural response to something like this to be astonished and afraid. And that's the call to you today. How are you going to respond to this? The only appropriate response is bowing your knee, confessing with your tongue, repent, believe, Take up your cross and follow him. It's the only appropriate response or the response that we see here in the book of Revelation where the angels, thousands and thousands of them are around the throne of Jesus and they say worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. That is an appropriate response to a resurrected savior. What is your response today, friends? Is Jesus just another teacher? Is Jesus just another world religious leader? Is Jesus, in your mind, still dead in the tomb? Or is Jesus the risen King of glory? So, the resurrection helps us answer these things, friends. Is there a God? Yeah, there is a God and he has taken form in the name of a man named Jesus who has been resurrected from the dead. God's name is Jesus, and he proved it by raising from the dead. Is there an afterlife? Yeah, there is. Because the resurrected Jesus spoke of that afterlife, and he said, there is a place called hell for those who do not know me and have not placed faith in me, and people will go there. That's a horrible afterlife. But he also says, there is a place called heaven for those who will repent, turn from their sins, and place faith in me. Yeah, there's an afterlife. We can know that because Jesus said it. And Jesus is risen from the dead, so we should believe him. Is there hope beyond the grave? Is death the end? No, it's not the end. (laughs) Jesus is risen from the grave. He's alive today. He has overcome the powers of death. He has come out of the tomb. He lives today. And he says that you can live too if you place your faith in him. And is there meaning in this life? Well, absolutely there is. And the meaning of life is simply this, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why you were created. That's why you're here. That's why you're in this sanctuary today listening to this message. And the way you do that is by placing faith in Jesus who was risen from the dead. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are amazed and astonished that the resurrection is true. Thank you for this miraculous work on our behalf. You, Jesus, coming to die for our sins and being raised up to glory. O oh Lord, help us to not be like the women who told no one, but give us the grace now to tell everyone that Jesus is risen. In his name we pray.